From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I'm David Merritt. And I'm Francine Lacqua. And this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the stories and the voices at the heart of the City of London. This week, a conversation with Daniel Pinto, founder and chief executive of Stanhope Capital. Now, Dave, you know, you go to dinner and you never know how that dinner is going to go. You either sit next to someone a bit boring and you kind of, you know, try and run the clock down or you really luck out. And I sat next to Dan Pinto. Wow. Well, there you go. That's a, I mean, why wasn't I invited? I know. Next time, there's, <laughs> no. there has to be a French connection, but we'll make you honorary <laughs> French, Mr. Merritt. Dan, thank you Merit. so much. No, it's a pleasure. Monsieur Pinto, thank a you so much pleasure. for joining us. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about Stanhope Capital, the way that you started and the way that this has really flourished into um, an independent alternative asset management. So I founded Stanhope Capital in 2004, uh, very much as the anti-private bank. Everything you dislike about private banks, I try to do the opposite. And the list was very long. And uh, the concept was very simple. I, I you know, noticed that many clients of the private banks were unhappy about the conflicts of interest, about uh, the turnover of personnel in these banks. And uh, I decided to create a firm that would put a client at the center of the company as opposed to the product. So we're not about selling, we're about advising. And guess what? Uh, it became very popular. And uh, initially, I started with the backing of um, five uh, families who were former clients of mine at uh, SG Warburg, a name that has disappeared from the financial landscape uh, when it was acquired by UBS. But it was at the time a very prominent uh, merchant bank. So these five families backed me, became clients of Stanhope Capital, and then the rest is history, as they say. The firm grew uh, to become the largest independent wealth manager uh, in Europe with about $33 billion of assets under management and a scope of activities that goes all the way from uh, wealth management to uh, private equity, real estate, and uh, merchant banking. Uh, you, you've had a ringside seat, obviously, to many changes across the financial industry in Europe. As a result, what is the uh, sentiment like in your industry right now? Well, uh, the city is going through a difficult moment, uh, undoubtedly. The fact that you've had announcements in the last couple of weeks that Arm is going to list in New York as opposed to London, that CRH, a prominent building material firm, is also uh, moving to New York, Flatter, the gambling company, Ferguson, the plumbing and heating company. The list is long of firms that either were not public and decided to go public in the US or were public in London and decided to move to the US or have a dual listing in the US. And the, the kind of, uh, the, the bad news did not start last week with all these announcements. The bad news started quite, you know, a few years ago. 
the reality of London is that it is still uh, the most prominent financial center in Europe. It is still attractive, I think, but I think we've lost a little bit of our competitive edge. And there are a number of reasons for that. Is that Brexit? I mean, Brexit was not helpful, but I don't think it's the only reason. Uh, I think the key reason is that the pool of money available for investment in the public markets in the UK has shrunk. The pension funds are investing less in public companies in the UK. And just to give you a sense, the size of the uh, public markets in the UK was about $4 trillion during the Great Financial Crisis or right before in 2007. It has gone from about $4 trillion to $3 trillion today. So uh, a, a, you know, a pretty massive reduction in the size of the, of the market. You know, the decline in the number of companies being listed in, in the UK is also quite staggering. You have 40% less public companies today than in 2007. And the reason for it is primarily, as I said, the shrinking pool of money available for investment in the UK. So pension funds, because of the uh, everything that has happened in terms of defined benefit and th their difficulty in investing in public companies and their preference for investing in bonds in order to uh, match assets and liabilities, that has had a very bad impact. But it's not just that. I think the regulatory framework in the city was not, uh, has not followed the times, if you will. In other words, you know, where the US was quite creative in terms of creating a regulatory framework that was pro-growth, London has lagged behind. And that, you know, can, we can give many examples, but listing rules, for example, are much simpler in New York than in London. Uh, if you want a primary listing in London, you need to comply with many, many more rules than in the US. Uh, and that has pushed the gross companies, particularly in technology, to go to the US, notwithstanding the fact that they have more investors in the US, they find more investors in the US, and that's a deeper uh, pool of money. But the rules themselves have uh, remained stuck in time, in a way, uh, in London. And that's a problem. That's a problem. And there are many reforms that we can speak about to address the issues. But these are the issues that London is facing. Uh, if your question, Dave, was about beyond London, uh, the worries about the public markets, obviously, we're coming out of a year that was very, very difficult for uh, every market, but particularly equity markets and bond markets. And the attitude today of most investors is to hope that 23 will be a better year, to hope that monetary policy is not going to kill uh, the nascent recovery of public markets. So that's pretty much the mood, you know, to respond to your question. It's a pretty bleak outlook then, isn't it, in, in terms of London? I'm just wondering, on this question of public markets and their size, I mean, London isn't necessarily alone in this process, isn't it? And uh, is it particularly bad in the UK because the pension funds are acting differently? But, I, you know, there's been a trend in years of, of, of companies going private, of taking themselves off those public markets. That's not peculiar or, or unique to London, is it? No, you're right. Uh, but I think London has suffered on two fronts. Uh, the public market side, as we, as we discussed, for the reasons we discussed, i.e. pool of money that is shrinking, i.e. a regulatory framework that is more difficult. But London has suffered also on the private equity side. And why? Simply because we, the insurance companies and the pension funds, which normally, if you look at the US, are the biggest providers of money for private equity, well, guess what? In the UK, 
pension funds and insurance companies find it very, very difficult to invest in private equity. We talked, we, we spoke about the public equity side, but that's true as well for private equity. And, and that means that we kind of missed out on both fronts, public equity and private equity. So why are we so slow in the reforms? We actually spoke to Mark Austin of Freshfields that put all of these reforms in place. And he says, look, it's not too late to transform. I think that was six months ago. Do these things take time or are we just behind the curve? Francine, we are complacent. Complacency is the worst thing. Uh, we Who regulators been, are? Everyone. Uh, the market has been complacent. The regulators, uh, investors, uh, you know, just to give you a sense the fact that gross companies prefer to list in the, U in the U.S. is not just linked to what we described, which is obviously they find a, a bigger pool of money. It's a cultural issue. The city of London is now full, if you look at the asset management industry, it is now full of value investors that are seeking dividends as opposed to growth. It's become a public market for pensioners, not a public market that is uh, aiming at finding uh, the big companies of tomorrow. It is seeking to provide dividends to pensioners. When did that change? Well, it's over time. I think it's a cultural issue. I think that uh, London has always been quite skeptical about growth stocks um, because they obviously don't show the kind of profits that you would find in a, um, a more mature sector uh, or more mature sectors. And, uh, you know, over time, uh, the big London investors have missed the boat of uh, the kind of digital revolution, for example. But you know, it's a market that goes very quickly. If you miss that boat, it's very, very hard to jump back on that boat. And today, as a result, the digital companies prefer to go to America or even to Asia uh, to raise money, or to the Middle East to raise money. Uh, and, and so that's, that's the, uh, the issue that we have to deal with, I think. But, they, you know, it's interesting also, isn't it, that New York is the beneficiary here. And, you know, we want to come on to Paris as well, but we've seen that market overtake London in terms of size. Why aren't some of the growth companies choosing the rest of continental Europe or the European Union to list? Are they, are they also facing some of these same structural problems? Yeah, same, same issues. You don't have a community of investors in Europe, I'm talking about the continent here, that necessarily understand the growth sectors as uh, they would in the US and is not as willing, if you will, to put the right kind of valuations on these companies. I mean, there is a discount today. When you look at, I mean, New York has always traded a premium to uh, the UK and Europe in terms of valuations. Today, the discount is 30 to 40% when you look at uh, valuation metrics. It's a lot. The value investors would argue, well, you know, uh, that's why we are right and they are wrong. They are paying too much for these companies. Well, that, that's, you know, if you go back 15 years, you go back to 2008 and you look at the performance of the uh, US uh, equity markets, S&P 500, against the Eurostox 600, the outperformance over the period is a factor of 3.5 times. The US has done 3.5 times better than Europe and the UK. So we have to wonder why. And the reason is very simple. You look at uh, the sector breakdown of the S&P 500. About a quarter of uh, the index is comprised of technology companies. You look at Europe, 5 6% of Euro stocks is technology companies. So if you assume that the future of growth not just growth of the top line, but growth of earnings. So value creation, if you assume that value creation will still very much revolve around these growth sectors, which have been disliked in 22, 
but it's a parenthesis. Let's not lose sight. The future in terms of value creation remains in these kind of uh, sectors. If you assume that that's the case, then we have in Europe, and when I say in Europe, I include the UK, we have a, we have a problem. We have to find a way of backing these companies from the point where they are young with, with a sufficient uh, amount of private equity capital available for growth companies and venture capital, and we don't have enough venture capital for the reasons I've mentioned, to the point where they become more mature, go public, and then you have to have a different investor base of large insurance companies and pension funds that are willing and able to follow them. We don't have that. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I mean, you're talking about the ecosystem, but is there something more immediate that ministers, and we meet young ministers or regulators that are hungry, have fire in the belly and want to make a difference. Is it too little too late? I remember Rishi Sunak pitching quite hard to get Deliveroo. Now, that yes. was a flop, yes. but at least he got them here. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, it takes quite a few uh, participants, if you will. Start, start with uh, reform. That has to come from the government and regulatory bodies. Um, Lord Hill, as you know, had produced a very good report about ways of making listing rules more flexible and more aligned with, um, with the US. Not much has happened since, even though the Edinburgh reform, as you recall, the Chancellor had come up with a big plan, which was supposed to be Big Bang 2.0. Right, got scaled back somehow, yeah. didn't it? You know, haven't seen it? Big Bang 2.0 uh, at all. Uh, it's like nothing happened. And that's because there is a kind of um, unwillingness to uh, uh, really act quickly. I think uh, regulatory reform will involve the government, will involve the regulatory authorities. Listing rules have to be changed. And also rules pertaining to pension funds in the UK and insurance companies in the UK have to change, and they have to change quickly. You know, we've got a prime minister who's a, a Goldman Sachs Alum, you know, we've got a chancellor who's a former business person. I mean, th this is supposed to be kind of the dream team for the city. So I guess, you know, if, if not now, when? I mean, I, surely this is the best chance and of getting some of these sort of reforms through. It feels extraordinary that we're not getting that sort of movement from this government. I mean, I guess we've got a budget coming up fairly soon, so maybe we'll wait and see. But as that rollback of the Edinburgh reform shows... I agree. Uh, it, it should be the focus. I think they have been very busy on basically uh, saving the economy. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> that, that little distraction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A little distraction. But I think, uh, I think we've passed the worst. So they've done that, right? I mean, uh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, we've passed Give the worst of that period. So now they should have uh, a bit more time and energy to focus on that because it's quite essential. It's not just essential because we want a thriving financial sector. It's essential because the financial sector represents about 10% of UK GDP. So it's not a joke. I mean, it's a very important sector for the, the economic growth of the country. And it's not just because it is 10% of GDP that it's important. It's because with a thriving financial sector, you have the means to actually finance the economy, both in terms of equity financing, private and public, and in terms of debt financing. If you don't have that, you have an economic problem, not just a financial problem. 
What, what do you think the Chancellor should do in the budget for either corporation tax or individuals? I know that the temptation is to raise corporation tax. I, sh I think they should really be careful about that because to add that on the table at this stage would be a mistake. I, I think that um, there should be a clear statement about uh, a desire to deregulate a little bit. I mean, it's not about, I mean, let, let's not throw the, uh, the bus terms of Singapore on Thames, etc. I don't care how it's called. But clearly, our regulatory framework is too rigid, and that has to be addressed. Uh, we should make uh, London more attractive to foreigners, not less attractive to foreigners. And that's true for foreign companies and foreign individuals. So all kinds of things need to be done post-Brexit to make London more attractive. I mean, in a cost of living crisis, that's probably not going to go down yes. well. True. But people should understand that it's not because you reduce tax on one side that they suffer. Actually, you, sometimes you have to reduce tax or keep tax as it is in order for the entire system to benefit and for people that are suffering today because of the cost of living crisis to do better, to earn more. I mean, there is a collective uh, responsibility to ensure that you make London and the UK more attractive to corporations for more jobs to be created and for people to make more money. I mean, you mentioned them having to save the economy. Of course, it was only you know just a few months ago that, and you talked about the pension industry, that it was teetering on some sort of systemic collapse because of the budget under Liz Truss. And the damage, we've spoken a lot about this on this podcast, Francine and I, about the damage done to Britain's reputation. Has that now healed under this government? Investors not look at Britain with the sort of trepidation that they did last autumn? Uh, it has healed to a large extent, but I think that the psychological shock was serious. In other words, who would have guessed that sterling would be perceived as a weak currency? Who would have guessed that, you know, the UK government might have been derated by the uh, by Standard Poor's and Moody's? Who would have guessed all of these things? So we, I think we are out of the worst of this uh, crisis of confidence. But I think we, not, we, you know, we still have some way to go to reassure markets that uh, it's not going to happen again. I mean, I remember, Dave, that autumn, I was in Italy covering the Italian elections, you know, usually very volatile, very market moving. And I remember being recalled back to London because actually we thought we were on the brink. Why have the pension reforms not been on the back of that, you know, dealt with quickly? Again, do these things take time or are they just dragging their feet? They take time. And, you know, I, 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 without uh, jumping into the details of uh, the pension reform, which is highly technical, you will recall that most of the pension funds in the UK were organized around so-called defined benefit systems, which had the disadvantage of creating a kind of fixed liability uh, for companies. And if markets, if, you know, the money was invested in public markets, equities and bonds, if markets fell, suddenly a deficit was created. The rules have changed many years ago to ensure that deficits cannot increase without limits. And what happened is that these rules have pushed many of these pension funds to dramatically reduce risk, i.e. exposure to equities, at the point when they, they are in deficit. But guess what? The best solution to fight against this deficit and go into surplus was to stay invested in equities, <laughs> was not to shrink your equity exposure to go into bonds because then you have no capacity to rebound. That's the kind of um, rule that had a good intention, i.e. make the, the you know, pension funds safer, but ultimately uh, made pension funds stay in deficit forever, 
without any capacity to rebound. In addition, has created a system where there is less money available for equities. So you had two collateral damages that were completely unintended, but uh, have to be addressed today. So this kind of reform uh, would require, you know, the regulators and government sitting with uh, the managers of pension funds and making the system evolve. It takes a bit of time. But they really should get cracking <laughs> because time is of the essence. Do you see any any evidence that they're doing that, or no. as you say no? No, they're not on this actually... front, no, uh, not yet. I haven't seen that. What they are trying to address at this stage, for example, is insurance companies. So not pension insurance companies. Solvency two. Solvency two. So they understand again, looking at the U.S. model, which is not perfect, but at least it's a model that uh, pushes uh, the large institutions to really invest in, in, in the economy and in the growing companies. Uh, they look at the US model and they see that the large insurance companies can invest a meaningful portion of their assets into private equity, both buyouts and ventures and venture capital. And they say, well, we have large insurance companies in the UK. We have solvency too that is preventing them from investing more uh, for the long term. What can we do about it? So they want to now benefit from the fact that with Brexit, they are no longer bound by Solvency 2 rules in order to uh, enable these insurance companies to be a bit more proactive. It's mentioned, at least there is intention to reform, but the is measures haven't work? been taken. <laughs> so, but, I mean, is that a reform that you think is necessary and the right path? Absolutely right. necessary. Again, there, is, there was this perception way back, and that was the, again, it was well-intentioned, that if you're an insurance company and you have to make sure that you can meet uh, your liabilities vis-a-vis -vis uh, the holders of uh, insurance policies, you should not invest too much in illiquid assets such as you know, private equity. It was perceived as risky. But guess what? You look at the track record of private equity over the last 10, 15 years, it was the best asset class to invest in. Yes, illiquid, but people who have done it intelligently have done tremendously well. If you were the city minister... Daniel, then, or, or even the Chancellor, perhaps, and you, what, what would be the first thing you would do in this budget to get things moving in the right direction? What's the most urgent reform? I think I would address the issue of pension funds immediately, because that's where most of the money is. Um, and, and again, it's not something that is easy to communicate from a political standpoint, because people don't understand. Doesn't get you votes. Well, it doesn't get you votes. But you know, you know what? It has to be done. So I think I would start with that. And uh, secondly, uh, I would address the issues identified by Lord Hill and would actually implement the whole Lord Hill report without delays. And I, I know that they want to do that. And, I, and again, this is not, you cannot explain to the public, it's so essential to change the listing rules. But when you understand the consequence of that, you do understand that it's absolutely essential. So... Uh, that's, I would prioritize that, and I would certainly not announce, um, and, and I know that there is pressure on, on the budget, but I would not announce a, a, you know, an increase in corporate tax. That would be the worst moment to do that. Talk to us, Daniel, about the, the Windsor framework. So this, Dave, can we call it the, the Sunak Brexit deal? And yeah. whether it makes that much of a difference to UK-E relationships and whether it means that we'll get equivalency and how much of an impact this has on the City of London. So I don't think it has a direct impact on the City of London, but I think it changes the atmosphere completely. <laughs> I mean, it's a very different tone, isn't it? I it's mean, exactly it's, right. Yeah, and tone yeah. is important. Uh, I would it not It doesn't get you deals, does it? It, do it doesn't get you deals. No, it doesn't get you deals. 
But you want to, because, you know, as you know, there was an attempt to um, sign deals 18 months ago, and it has failed miserably. Europe was not willing to sign deals, particularly in the world of financial, sec you know, financial services. I am not saying that Europe, post the Windsor framework, would jump back at the negotiating table and say, let's sign deals. But I think that it's the start of a new phase, if you will, uh, in the relationship between the UK and Europe. And I think the tone has changed. It's much more friendly. And uh, you've seen the pictures of uh, uh, Mrs. van der Leyen and, and Rishi Sunak. Oh, yeah, it's very, very uh, 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 flirty. Even, very, I absolutely. Say that. <laughs> very I wouldn't friendly. go that far, Dave. I would maybe say friendly. <laughs> I mean, flirty, maybe if you're like a UK all-boy public school, but yeah, that's right. <laughs> not by an European uh, standard. And, and, and uh, wait, wait until she meets Macron. And no, that's great. Uh, jokes aside, I think it's great that the atmosphere has changed because it, it, was, it was silly for the last couple of years. And again, regardless how you feel about Brexit, it's very, very clear that there has to be a better relationship between the UK and Europe being its largest trading partner. And I think we are getting there. So I think that's a feather on the cap of, uh, of Rishi. I mean, the, the equivalence question is a different one, though, isn't it? Because I don't see where there is an incentive on the European side to agree any more concessions. I mean, we read every, pretty much every week, it feels there's another story about expansion of banks, particularly in Paris, um, as trading and investment banking and all these things going. So I'm not sure why would the European Union want to sort of um, unlock the gate again for, for, for the City of London? No, they will not. In the short term, they won't. Let's not delude ourselves. Uh, I think you have to give it a bit of time and perhaps slowly we'll be able discreetly to negotiate new things for, for the UK. But you're absolutely right, uh, Dave. I don't think they will unlock the door anytime soon. Uh, we have to be patient. That's all. Um, you know, you, you mentioned something earlier about Paris having become the largest equity market in Europe above London. And uh, there is a reason for that, which is that, as you know, the French and the Germans have been able to keep the ownership of their largest companies, including listed companies, in the hands of certain families, uh, such as Arnaud with LVMH, such as the Dassault, such as the Peugeot, such as, I mean, the list is very long. For some reason, the UK has not been able to maintain uh, family ownership or founder ownership in its largest companies. And it's, it's a big difference and it's a big issue. So we are, in a way, and that's really the challenge that the UK has and London has. On the one hand, we do not have the large growth companies that you find uh, in the US, particularly in the world of technology. On the other, our largest companies are not held by uh, founding families of founders, but you know they have a capital which is widely uh, spread. Why is it an issue, if I may? It's an issue because if you are, Arno, holding over 40% or 45% of your company um, and the majority of the voting rights, you don't really care about the volatility of your stock. You can invest for the future without worrying too much about your quarterly results. I'm not saying they are immune to the dictatorship of the markets in terms of quarterly results but they are less inclined to make the wrong decisions because they are under pressure from the financial market. In other words, they are not thinking short-term, they are thinking long-term. The problem that we have with many of our large public companies in the UK is that they are led by professional CEOs who are not 
substantial shareholders, most of them, and they are terrified of the quarterly result, uh, you know, mentality, if you will. And, and that is bad. The US, again, with all its flaws, <laughs> when you look at the largest uh, public companies, particularly in the world of technology, many of them are still founder-led or founder-influenced. And that, again, puts them in a position where they can invest for the future without necessarily being uh, too focused on, on short-term results. And I think that's another element that we have to think about carefully when it comes to the UK economy and the UK market. I Just there's a big cultural sort of at, or an attitudinal difference though here, isn't there, between the way that London has been run versus Europe. I'm just thinking about the ARM example that we mentioned. Of course, you know, of course, it used to be listed in London. And remember, after the Brexit vote, it was held up as an example of how Britain was still very attractive when SoftBank swooped in to buy it. And the government let that transaction happen. It would be very hard to see that have happened in France uh, to allow a foreign takeover of the biggest technology company, for instance. But again, the, the government here at the time celebrated it and said, look, investors want to buy Britain. So that's that fundamental difference, isn't it? That really Britain's companies were for sale and the Conservative government were very happy to see global investors snap them up. Whereas I think in France, it's kind of unimaginable to see that. Yeah, I mean, that company, clearly you're right, uh, Dave, that company would not have been sold to uh, a foreign entity uh, in France. That's It's very clear. I'm not saying that France is right. I think that... Um, France, as you know, has been much more protective of its corporate leaders, particularly in the world in sectors which are deemed to be strategic. And clearly, ARM would have been deemed I mean, to be they also think super strategic. And yogurts. That's right. Are well, you know, so they, I, you know. Yeah. If they <laughs> said that yogurts were strategic, you can important. imagine that ARM would have deemed to be uh, very strategic. Uh, they go a bit too far. And the UK uh, has probably been a bit too loose in, in terms of uh, letting its. Uh, most promising companies be acquired by uh, foreign firms. But let's not forget the positioning of London has always been to be a platform for the rest of the world into Europe, into the European market. Uh, now, Brexit has sadly a bit changed that, uh, but London exists as a financial market because it is a platform, because it is perceived as a bridge between the US and Europe um, and is perceived as friendly to Asian uh, investors. If London had been overly protective and had blocked the acquisition of some of its largest businesses, that role as a platform would have been jeopardized. And the DNA, if you will, of London might have changed. You know, you have to look at the cultural history and background of uh, each respective market to know what's right, what's wrong. I don't think that the French recipe would have been appropriate for London. Daniel, if you were to start Stanhope Capital today, would you still do it in London? That's a good question. So I started, I started Stanhope Capital in London because uh, it was the most pan-European city when I started about 20 years ago. And I said to myself, if you want to start a business in the world of financial services um, in Europe, where should it be? And London was clearly the answer uh, for that reason. I would still do it in London today because I think that London has kept an advantage over many other capitals in Europe. Uh, it is still, um, in my mind, put aside the issue of the, uh, the size of the equity markets and Paris being bigger than London. The ecosystem of London is unmatched. I mean, I would love to tell you that Paris is getting there, but it has a long way to go before getting there. 
the ecosystem is London in London is unmatched. Um, and when I say ecosystem, it's the financial world. It's, um, you know, obviously the world of advisors, uh, the uh, lawyers, the accountants, the trustees. I mean, there is a, a whole ecosystem that makes London absolutely unique. And I think if you assume that uh, being a bridge between the US and Europe uh, is important and can be beneficial, I don't think that any other city in continental Europe can claim to be that bridge. So London has its natural position, if you will, that is not about to disappear. So yes, I would still start my company in London, but I would very soon thereafter create entities on the continent as well, <laughs> which I did subsequently <laughs> because we now have four offices in Europe. We have four offices in the US and four offices in Europe, including, including in Paris, as a matter of fact. So an optimistic vision for the future, for yeah, London, I, despite I all the problems we're seeing. Yeah, I think we are going through a rough patch uh, in the UK, but I think that um, we can address it and we can rebound. I mean, I'm absolutely convinced of that. Uh, but there has to be awareness uh, that reforms are not just necessary, but urgent. Daniel, how many emails do you get from the other Daniel Pinto, JP Morgan. There's like two I have to ask because I was fascinated. I mean, literally. Well, I know, we know each yeah. other. I okay. know him. Um, and, uh, and the biggest problem is not so much the emails, it's the bookings in London restaurants where they never know if it's, if it's, if it's, if it's him or me. And, and the worst thing is that we have the same middle initial, uh, oh, which is Daniel E. Pinto. So there is no way to... Do you uh, have a similar taste in restaurants? Well, yeah, kind of, yes. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Apparently. But he spends most of his time in, in New York now. So, uh, you know, it's, less, uh, it's become less of an issue. He used to be based in London, but now he's based in New York. I love that. Daniel Pinto, thank you so much. Pleasure, pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We will be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, David Merritt. And me, Francine Lacqua. It was produced by Summer Sardi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. And a special thanks to Daniel Pinto. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.